Well, good morning, Triumphant Grace. Wow, as Cindy said, it is awesome to be back in the air-conditioned state of Wisconsin. I've had people say, well, um, what do you think of the weather here, all this humidity? And I'm going, this ain't humid. This ain't hot and this ain't humid. We're having a great time visiting family, friends. And now, here we are. And I've got this funny feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I don't know if it's emotion, because watching that presentation that Cindy gave, seeing my granddaughter, the work that God's doing in Haiti is, it's incredible and he's not done. Amen? We've got plans to start building on top of that first floor to add more school rooms, more grades, more kids, and um, it's really, it's really incredible. And I don't, and the feeling in the pit of my stomach, I, maybe I'm just hungry. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's a little bit of nervousness. I haven't preached in a while, but I'm really looking forward to this morning. Today's message is really the crux and the centerpiece of our ministry. And it's nothing new. So, I mean, we heard it in the music. We heard it in Pastor Mark's mini-sermon. So it's nothing new. Please bear with me if you've heard this before. Some of it seems repetitive, because in a way it is. But this message has been on my heart for a long time. I've come all the way from Haiti to give this message. Well, not really. I came for other reasons, but I'm glad to be here and give this. I believe this message is completely foundational for our faith. And it bears repeating over and over again. I mean, you hear this message all the time here at Triumphant Grace. Now, in all my messages, I have two main goals. It's first to encourage you in the Lord, to edify, to build you up, so that we're all more prepared for the work of the ministry. But secondly, I want to challenge you. Much as the Apostle Peter did in 2 Peter 3.18, where he tells us, challenges us, perhaps commands us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is my goal and hope this morning. It's the very purpose of this message. Because no matter how long we've been a Christian, whether as a longtime pastor or a newly baptized member, if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, there's always room for more growing. Amen? And I believe that this morning's message, which is entitled, The Image of God, will not only challenge and encourage you, but will help you in your daily walk with God. Let me begin by asking you a very important question. What is your own personal image of God? I'm not asking for an answer now, but I am asking you to be completely honest with yourself. Think about it for a while. What is the image of God that you hold deep in your heart? 
that perhaps will only come forth in the really difficult times of your life. Perhaps when real tragedy strikes, a sickness or an untimely death of a loved one. Or perhaps will come forth even in your day-to-day life as you look around at today's world and see all the tragedy, the pain, the fear, the injustice, the poverty, and the list could go on and on. What is your image of God as you meditate, as you think about these things? In your heart, is God ever a God who just sometimes doesn't seem to care? Is God ever a violent God? Is he a God of war? Or a God who will bring physical destruction to his enemies, or perhaps to your enemies? Is he a truly good God? A God of love? Of peace? Is he always with you? Always patient and merciful and kind with you? And all others around you? Or can he be maybe all of that depending on the situation? The absolute truth is that there is one and only one image of God that should be in your heart at all times. And that's what this message is all about. It's about the very image of God that he himself wants us to have of him. Again, this true image of God is a foundational truth that everything else in our faith walk is built upon. So it is of the utmost importance to get this truth firmly established in our hearts. So as I remember Joseph Prince used to say, are you ready for the word? Let's pray. Father, glorify your name. Amen. That worked for Jesus. Remember when he prayed that prayer and and the Father answered him, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again? Amen, that's happening today. So let's begin by looking at a passage of scripture from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Now the words various times in the Greek language is one word. According to the Strong's Concordance, it literally means many portions. Now, when I think of many portions, the first thing that comes to my mind is a jigsaw puzzle. Now, if I had one today, and I gave each of you one piece, you really wouldn't be able to tell me anything about the completed picture. And in the Old Testament... God did speak to and through many different people, through many years. He did speak in different ways and in many portions. You might say he spoke in bits and pieces. So keep in mind, this is how God communicated about himself, about his will, about the future and everything else in the Old Testament. Now there was also another word that is used in the New Testament, that helps explain what it was like for those who lived in the Old Testament, who were trying to understand who God really was and what he was doing. Let's look over in Hebrews chapter 8 and verses 4 and 5. 
Now in verse 3, the author of Hebrews has been talking about the Jewish priests who served under the old covenant sacrificial system. Verse 4 says, For if he, and he's speaking of Jesus, were on the earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Because the law also said that these priests had to be of the tribe of Levi. And since Jesus was born in, of the tribe of Judah, he wasn't qualified to be one of those priests. Verse 5 continues, who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. Now, shadow is the word I want to focus on for just a moment. Now, of course, we know that a shadow is produced when bright light is shined upon an object. So this verse is telling us that the priests of the Old Covenant were actually serving a shadow, but not the actual reality. Of course, they didn't realize it, but it was their situation. Staying in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It says, for the law. And in context here, the law is referring to the sacrificial laws of the Old Covenant. We will see this throughout chapter 9 of Hebrews and continues into chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of those things. Again, in context here, the very image that this is speaking of is Jesus' sacrifice. That's the reality that the shadows were pointing to. Let's just look for a moment at the outcome of this reality, of Jesus' sacrifice. Continuing in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Can I hear an hallelujah? Yeah. Amen. We have been sanctified. We have been set apart once for all time. Verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Can I have an hallelujah? One sacrifice for all sins for all time. That's the reality. Verse 14. Isn't this good? For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You're being sanctified. You are perfected forever in the eyes of God. Verses 16 and 17. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Hallelujah! Haman! The author of Hebrews is telling us that God doesn't remember our sins. He doesn't hold them against us. He doesn't even remember them. And of course, these verses are talking about the new covenant. It's our covenant with God. 
It's talking about God's wonderful moral laws that have been put into our hearts and written not in stone like the old covenant, but written in us by the Holy Spirit. So how has God done this? Romans 5, verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans chapter 13, verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. What are these verses telling us? That God himself has empowered us with love so that we can live in love and so in fulfillment of his laws. Those sacrificial ritual laws, the law itself was only a shadow of the reality. And it was there to point us to Christ. This is what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. That word substance can also be translated, and it is in the King James, as the body. The substance, the body, is of Christ. Here the Apostle Paul is contrasting shadow with reality. And that difference is huge. Two quick facts about shadows. With a shadow, you can easily get the wrong picture of the reality. There are people who can make things with their hands and have a light shine and it looks like a rabbit or a dog. But that's not the reality. That's the wrong picture of the reality of a person's hands. Secondly, if I had a shadow here, and I do, it's kind of over here, me or my shadow, who can you have a relationship with, right? You can't have a relationship with a shadow. So once you see the reality, the shadow is no longer needed. So once again, those under the old covenant only knew of God through many portions, through bits and pieces that had been collected over many, many years. They knew and served him in what were shadows of the true reality. Now, if we return for a moment to the analogy of that jigsaw puzzle, even if I gave you a hundred pieces of a thousand-piece puzzle, you might be able to tell me a little something about that puzzle, but you would still be a long way away from seeing the complete picture. Now let's just go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times in many portions and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Now the prophets, and this is going all the way back to Moses, it includes David as well. Now we know they all had a real heart for God. And they made themselves available for God's use. But the plain truth is that they were all very imperfect people. I'm not going to take the time to explore their imperfections because you already know them. But also because the fact is, God has only had imperfect people to work with, right? 
He had no choice. That's all he had to work with. Those imperfect people spoke to us. The prophets did the best they could with the knowledge they had. But again, it was in shadows and in bits and pieces. Keep this in mind as we read verse 2. But now he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So now we have been spoken to and taught by the complete opposite of imperfection. We've been taught by the Son of God himself, by Jesus, the perfect one. In the Old Testament, they had a shadow of this. They understood it to some degree. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit, in his mouth. Speaking of Jesus, amen. No violence, no deceit in the mouth of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Paul's telling us that Jesus committed no sin. Now, most of us know that the basic definition of sin is missing the mark. Now, picture a target that you might use for shooting arrows at, right? There's a bullseye in the middle. What Paul is telling us is that Jesus never missed the bullseye, even a little bit. He was dead center all the time. There was no missing the mark. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter told us that Jesus was a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, under the Old Covenant, all sacrificial lambs that were brought to the temple had to be inspected by the Levitical priests. And if any imperfection, any blemish whatsoever was found, it could not be used as a sacrifice. Peter is telling us there's no imperfection in Jesus. The Apostle John gives us a little greater detail in John chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now that word declared is also translated revealed or interpreted. Jesus has revealed God. Now word seen in the Greek language, the definition is not necessarily one of primarily physical sight, although that is included, but it's mostly a mental perception. So according to the two verses that we just read, God has not only now spoken to us by his son, by his perfect son, but he has revealed him to us as well. Praise God that today we who live on this side of the cross no longer need to look at shadows. Amen? We no longer need to look at bits and pieces of imperfect and incomplete revelations of God. For God sent Jesus to speak to us, to reveal him as only Jesus could. 
Now let's see what the author of Hebrews tells us about Jesus. Continuing in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory. The definition of brightness means a shining forth. The definition of glory means the honor that results from a good opinion or reputation. In other words, Jesus was the shining forth of all of God's glory, of all of his goodness, of all he was. John chapter 1 verse 14 also tells us, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. If you're full of something, there's no room for anything else in there, is there? Jesus is full of grace, but he's also full of truth. Jesus spoke later in his ministry that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a truth, not one truth among many, or even one who pointed to truth. He was truth himself. So as he speaks, as he reveals God to us, there is absolutely no deception, no missing the mark in Jesus. This is important because from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, we know Satan came and deceived them, and that deception was about God himself. In Genesis chapter 3, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And here's the verses we need to focus on. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Basically, the serpent told Adam and Eve that God was a liar, that he couldn't be trusted, and that God was withholding something good for them. And of course, we know sadly, Adam and Eve believed the lies. And you know what else? This exact deception about God, this deception about his complete goodness, faithfulness, and love, his true nature, has been in the world ever since. And people have continued to believe the deceptions and lies about the character of God. They believed that the bits and pieces that were revealed through imperfect people were themselves the full reality. They believed the shadows was the reality. And sadly, there are many, many people today in the world, and many Christians as well, that believe these lies and deceptions and half-truths about God. But now, we know that truth has come. And as Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 continues to tell us, Jesus was not only the brightness of his glory, but he was the express image of his person. And of course, that's where we're heading this morning. That's what we've been leading up to. 
the image of God, the true picture of God, the complete revelation of God that he wants us to have of himself and have it set firmly in our hearts and minds, that image is Jesus. He is the very image of God. The definition of image, according to the Strong's Greek Dictionary of the New Testament, as it is used in this verse, it is defined as essentially and absolutely the perfect visible expression and representation of God. Now, this isn't the only scripture that describes Jesus in this way. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, the literal translation of this verse is, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness was pleased to dwell. And of course, we're talking about the fullness of the Godhead. And we've already heard today that Jesus taught that the Father was in him. Scripture also tells us that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit was his in full measure. These verses tell us what we need to know and to know that we know that Jesus is the one true, the complete, perfect revelation of God. And again, Jesus himself taught this great truth many, many times. Why do you think he did that? Because the world didn't know God. It was in darkness. It was deceived. Even Israel, God's chosen people, they didn't know him. Remember, they only knew of the shadows and and they only had bits and pieces of revelation. Yes, they had their stories and beliefs and writings collected over 2,000 years, and yet they lived in darkness. Those who were supposed to be a light to the nations needed the light of the world. We also see this in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. And in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 15, and Matthew here is quoting directly from Isaiah chapter 9. It says, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat or lived in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So what did Jesus teach in order to bring us out of this darkness and to reveal the one true God to us through himself? You probably know all these scriptures that I'm about to give, but it's good to hear them again. Please listen and get them firmly established in your heart. Because the enemy is ever coming and ever whispering in your ear that God isn't as good as Jesus reveals him to be. 
the enemy is constantly whispering that God isn't exactly what Jesus reveals him to be, that in some ways he's somehow different. But that is deception and lie. Don't believe it. Listen and believe Jesus. John chapter 10, starting in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Can I have an hallelujah? Wow. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now the word one there means more than just one in purpose, right? Jesus is telling us he's claiming a oneness, a perfect unity with the Father that can never be broken. And you know, the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. Because in the next verse, it says they took up stones again to stone him for blasphemy. And also in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed that his disciples would have the same oneness, unity, as he and the Father had. Twice he spoke to the Father for the disciples to hear, saying, we are one. And this is one of my favorite passages in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 14, starting in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. I can almost hear a little hurt in Jesus' voice when he says, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Now, you could easily substitute God for Father, right? Because God is the Father. Father is, of course, God. So let's just reread that. If you had known me, Jesus is saying, you would have known God also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us God, and it's sufficient for us. Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen God. So how can you say, show us God? He who has seen me has seen God. You remember that word, seen, from before? It means not only physical sight, but a mental perception as well. Jesus is saying, if you know me, you do know God. Now, Jesus has clearly taught us that he is the image of God, of the Father, and of the Holy Spirit. He is the complete, the perfect revelation of God. If you don't see it in Jesus, it's not God. Amen? So as I begin to wrap up this message said I was going to challenge you, and now I am. In the days and weeks ahead, I challenge you to meditate on your own personal image of God. And then I want you to think about, where does this image come from? 
Does it come from teachings, sermons, books, perhaps a television evangelist? I have a short story about a Baptist minister. I don't know that I need to use the name. But in a 2004 program, and it was CNN late edition with Wolf Blitzer, this man, this Baptist minister, I'll give you a clue, he was also the leader of the moral majority. Him and Jesse Jackson, and I'm sure most of you know Jesse Jackson, he was a protege of Martin Luther King. He's the leader of the Rainbow Coalition. He's a, been a social activist for years. Well, anyway, they were talking about the war in Iraq. Jesse Jackson, in the middle of this talk, he said, let's stop the killing and choose peace. Let's choose negotiation over confrontation. Well, this other man replied, well, I'm for that too. And this man was a television preacher, okay? He says, I'm for that too. But you've got to kill the terrorists before the killing stops. And I'm for the president to chase them all over the world. If it takes 10 years, blow them away in the name of the Lord. Now, does that sound to you like anything Jesus would say? He had also said a few days after 9-11 that 9-11 might be the result of God's judgment on America. Now, I'm not saying all this as a condemnation of this man, though I completely and vehemently disagree with his comments, as many other Christian leaders did at the time. But I say this because it's important to realize and to know where your image of God comes from. Just because someone's a television evangelist doesn't mean they've got the true image of God. Is it possible that your image of God comes from your own personal experience, day-to-day -day life, or perhaps what you were brought up on? Or perhaps some of it may come from some Old Testament stories. And there are some horrific stories in the Old Testament. Let me read 2 Timothy 3.16. It says here, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the word inspiration in the Greek language actually means breathed. So all scripture is breathed of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So the Old Testament authors that God was working with, that he was breathing through, that he was inspiring, but these men were also very heavily influenced by their own culture and by all the pagan cultures that surrounded them. Remember, they only had the shadows of the reality. They only had bits and pieces. Incomplete and imperfect revelations and knowledge of the one true God. So do you get any of your image of God from teachings or experiences or Old Testament stories? Or... Does your image of God come from Jesus alone? Who, as I've tried to show throughout this message, is the absolute, perfect, and complete revelation of God and of who he is. So now, if you have believed and received this truth, 
What does it mean for you? Well, first it means you can't add anything to your image of God that does not come from Jesus. If it's not true of Jesus and revealed through him, it is not God. And it also means that you can't take anything away from how Jesus reveals God, even if it makes you uncomfortable or because it's not your experience. God is as Jesus is. Jesus is as God is. That is truth. Just like Jesus is truth and he is grace. So again, what does this mean for us? It means that if we have any image of God, any picture of him, any revelation of him that doesn't perfectly align with Jesus himself, we need to simply repent. And the word repent means change your mind. Change your mind and come into agreement with Jesus in his revelation of God. Now perhaps you are wondering why is this so important? Why is this so critical for us today? It's because the nature of our own personal day-to-day relationship with God depends on it. Now let me explain. Now we should all know that one of the reasons, and there are many reasons, that Jesus suffered and died was to reconcile us to the Father. In other words, to bring us back into a trusting, loving, intimate relationship with him. But sadly, too often, we only view our reconciliation to God as a type of spiritual transaction that was automatically accomplished by Jesus' sacrifice. And that's true, but there's so much more to it than that. Through Jesus' death, the door, if you will, has been thrown wide open for us to be reconciled to God. How has this happened? Again, not just by a simple transaction like you might make in a bank, but by Jesus dying on the cross. He revealed once and for all God's glory. He revealed once and for all God's true nature. A God who gave all that he could give for mankind. For he gave himself. Jesus revealed a God who is pure love. Who loves you and all men with an unsurpassable love. Loves you so much that he prayed. He even prayed for the forgiveness of the men who crucified him. Jesus revealed a God who even sacrificed himself to reconcile us to him. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus succeeded. Amen? He was victorious. The door to reconciliation is now wide open for us because now at long last, we know who God truly is. In Jesus, there is no deception, no missing the mark, pure 
unadulterated truth. We know who God truly is because Jesus taught it. He showed it to us through his healings, his miracles, and then he proved it beyond any shadow of a doubt on the cross of Calvary. One final question for you this morning. Why was this so important to God? Because true reconciliation with God results in an intimate, loving relationship with him. They are like two sides of the same coin. And this kind of relationship cannot happen if you believe God to be a violent, wrathful God. Or a God who's going to punish you for your sins. Or if you think he's even a a God who might punish you for your sins. Or if you believe God to be someone who is upset with you. Or is disappointed with you. Or a God who demands perfection or holiness from you before he will have a relationship with you. No, no, no. We see none of those things in Jesus. Jesus never punished, rejected, or condemned anyone. He welcomed all. He socialized. He partied with the sinners. He healed all that came to him. Refusing no one, not even the worst of sinners. He wasn't judging man. He was loving them. And everything Jesus said and did. He said it was the Father that was saying and doing those things. So let's hear once more from the heart of the Father in the Word of God. Hear as Jesus speaks that this is indeed God himself speaking personally to you. Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. The Father is saying, come to me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I love this in the message version. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Could it be any clearer? Here again, Jesus, the image of God, revealing for all of us with ears to hear God's one and only, his true nature. And here is the importance of seeing Jesus as the one true image of God. Because once you do, through reconciliation, and that loving relationship with God becomes so much easier. Brothers and sisters, God has already done everything he can do through Jesus. The door has been opened wide, now it's up to you. Will you walk through? Let me close with a scripture that shows that this was also the Apostle Paul's heart and his challenge as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Remember, true reconciliation and relationship only happens as we keep our eyes on Jesus, the image of God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for truth. We thank you for Jesus, whom you sent to us, for us, to reveal yourself in all your glory. I pray, Father, that this word, this revelation, would just enter our hearts and be firmly set there. And that once it is, we will be able to combat any deception. And we will draw nearer to you, seeking you as our Abba Father. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit and for the love you shed abroad in our hearts so that we can live according to your will. And that we can be a light to the world. We ask this and give you the thanks and praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen.